Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Goldfish Village podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Mercer, also a realtor with Premier Chicago Real Estate. Our motto is give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man a fish and you feed him for a lifetime. Today, we got a special guest on the podcast all the way from Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> <laughs> presently in Chicago, Bill Jones and Associate real estate developer and consulting extraordinaire. He's going to talk about his career and some of the projects that he's up to. And, you know, my first question to Mr. Jones, of course, I want to say thank you for coming on. But the first question I have is, if, if I want to achieve financial freedom through real estate, you know, given that you have had, you know, a, a wealth of knowledge, and I'm sure you made your fair share of mistakes, and you've seen, <laughs> you know, how the market has done crazy things, you know, unexpected things. If I wanted to create financial freedom through real estate, I'm coming out of college. I've been on the work on, on my job three, four, five years. I'm making decent income. What, 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 what would I do? How would I get started? I would make a plan, but I would say to anybody who was interested in real estate, I would ask them a couple of questions. One of the questions I would ask them. And probably the primary question that I would ask them is, what is your appetite for risk? Can you afford to lose money? What happens if you lose money? Does that bring on depression and despair and you know all of that kind of stuff? Because I can guarantee you that if you get into this business, you're going to have some good days and you're going to have some bad days. And if you can't tolerate bad days, this may look attractive to you, but it will drive you crazy. So if you want to if you want to uh, be successful in real estate, the first thing you got to do is you got to know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, if you can't uh, do the things that that um, allow you to take risk and have losses and have disappointments, then, you know, this isn't the business for you, because I can guarantee you're going to have disappointment. You're going to have losses and you're going to have bad days. It's, it's inevitable. So. so so that's the beginning. Okay. So if you want to make money, you want to plan. You want, want to under- be like I want to be like Bill Jones. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to be. It, like, I want to be like Bill Jones. I want to have your success by the time. If 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 I can take take a few minutes, Josh, just to, just to give you an overview of my 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 career, how I how I started as a young person, my development activity has always been in the urban core. I've had opportunities to do downtown. I've had opportunities to do suburban. It's never been attractive to me. What has been attractive is to do something where I'm making money and I'm building wealth for myself, but also trying to build communities where the people who purchase housing or live in housing that I'm uh, involved with are also either able to you know, work in a way that, that is going to build their wealth or buy a house that is going to appreciate in value so that they have their nest egg, their piece of the rock, their, their piece of the American pie. So that's always been my goal. And candidly, the way I got started is I got started as a, as a non, in the nonprofit uh, uh, arena. One of the things that I say to a lot of young people, particularly uh, coming up in real estate, is, you know, in a nonprofit, A, you're not using your money. B, you get to do more aspects of the job. So you're not, you're in a, if you go to a big company, you're going to get a job. 
And you're going to do that over and over and over again. Maybe you get a promotion, you got two jobs. But in a nonprofit, you're going to start out doing two or three different phases of a real estate project. So you're going to learn the business a lot uh, faster, a lot more thoroughly, and at a lot less risk to yourself. And so I'm not saying that everybody should work in a nonprofit, but I am saying that is a way, particularly for somebody, you say somebody that had had a good job and, and, and built up some equity from saving from their paycheck, but the guy who didn't have that opportunity, there's another way that you can do that. So I just throw that out there as a, as, as a, uh, as a way to do it. But I just think you've got to, you know, you've got to get out there in real estate and you've got to decide what you want to be. Are you going to be a multifamily developer? What does that mean? If you're going to own housing, you're going to rent to people, you got to maintain that housing. Um, you know, uh, I don't like to pick on this, but, you know, we just had a we just had a, an experience where three people died in the building that I, I know that I know the, the company that owns it. They do very good work. But for some reason, somebody didn't turn the heat off and three people died from exposure. Wow. You know, those things happen. How do you tolerate that? How do you prevent that? How do you plan for that? So that doesn't happen. Let me plan for it to happen, but plan for it not to happen. Um, if I had to speculate, I'd say that there was an inexperienced property manager, site manager at that location who knew that the rules were the heat doesn't get turned off until June 1st, but didn't look at the thermometer and see it was 90 degrees outside and the heat didn't need to be on at 90 degrees outside. So it's that kind of thing that you really have to say, can I do that all the way through? And what you hear about people is people get into real estate, they get into property management, things of that nature, and they fail. It not only fails the people who live in the building or live in, in that site, but it destroys the individual who's doing it because they usually do it with good intentions. Um, one of the things, I started real estate back in the early 70s. There was there was a lot of things going on that was at the end of the redlining era when the government broke up the whole redlining thing. And what we found in the black community, and I don't know, this was in Boston, so let me clarify that. Uh, and I suspect it was also true here in Chicago. And that is that people had been duped in the houses that they bought when redlining ended. And you said you started in that redlining era? I started in that era. It was late late 60s, early 70s. Was it like that apparent, like in your face, or was it something that was just- Well, I'll give you an example of, of, and this is in my own family. My aunt and uncle, my aunt was a domestic worker and my uncle was a, uh, he was a uh, World War II veteran who worked as a janitor in the VA hospital. So they had, you know, minimum wage income. They wanted to rent an apartment. So I went to a real estate broker looking to rent an apartment. And the broker said, you got two people working. We can qualify you to buy a house. My aunt said, we can't afford a house. We, can, we don't have a down payment. We can fix that. The house was $18,000. So they said, okay, we'll do the paperwork at $20,000. So now you've got your 10% your down. And you'll give you a mortgage for $18,000. So they 100% financed the house. This was my aunt and uncle's doing. They were not savvy people. They weren't educated. They weren't, you know, they weren't sophisticated in that way. But the real estate broker took care of all of that. Then he he basically said, I'll finance the $2,000, which meant that over time they were paying him the $2,000. That was theoretically the down payment, but it was an extra fee for him. 
Well, they had a HUD inspector who came out and said the house is in great shape. Within 18 months, the furnace went out, the roof leaked, a whole bunch of other stuff. There were conspiracies all over this country with people who were with black people who were buying houses in neighborhoods at the end of the redlining era. When when they were finally let in, they were they were sold just bad property. And in 1970, I think it was from 70, I think the federal government's from 19, anybody bought a house with HUD mortgage from 68 to 72 got, were, were able to file claims against the government so that if they had to pay for a new furnace and the roof, any of that kind of major capital expense, the government gave them their money back. That's how bad it was. And so people like me said, how do we prevent that from happening wow. to people in our how do we prevent that from happening to people in our neighborhoods? And that's how I got attracted to the housing market. The second thing I learned was the whole foreclosure public sale of buildings and the fact that public buildings were being sold to, in, to speculators and um, resold and resold, but never rehabbed. And so neighborhoods were kept down while given the tax code at the time, people could buy a vacant building, do nothing with it, use it as a tax write-off and and just when it when that ran out they just sell it to to their friend who was doing the same thing and so they would just pass abandoned buildings down in the, in the meantime black neighborhoods were getting worse and worse and worse in terms of property and property values and people would say the reason why the values aren't up look at all the raggedy houses y'all got in your neighborhood it wasn't our fault that there were raggedy houses in our neighborhood. it was the city and the speculators wow one other thing I'll tell you, and you, if you look at my resume, you'll see that was on the uh, Massachusetts Fair Plan. It was an insurance company that was a, was a, it was a uh, multi-risk insurance company for people who couldn't get traditional yeah. insurance. Yeah, I'm familiar with the Illinois Fair Plan. Okay. Well, the way I got on that was I was involved in an arson investigation that sent 86 people to the penitentiary. I'll tell you who those 86 people were as a category, not people, individual. But what we found out was you could go and buy a policy up to $25,000 and you never had to prove that you own the building. So what people would do, yeah, you're younger than me. So we, we invented, make sure they got a deed. Wow. So what people would do is they would get a list of a city owned abandoned property and they go to the fair plan and they would insure it because they didn't have to prove that they owned it. And then they would burn it and they collect the policy because the insurance company said it's not worth going out and doing an investigation on a 15, 20, $25,000 insurance policy. We're going to spend more money in investigatory services than, than not. So me and a group of people in the community actually went out and got the, um, and got the attorney general who was running for higher office, got him involved in the investigation. And we sent 86 people to the penitentiary. They were firefighters, police officers, um, insurance agents, mm. and the like. The highest ranking person was a fire lieutenant who went to jail. But they were, they were all involved in the arson conspiracy. So, yeah. so again, I go back to... I know what has happened in our neighborhoods around the city, you know, in that city. And I suspect something similar um, 
is ha happened here in Chicago and, and other major cities around the country. I know it happened in New York because we had a coalition with New York. But I said all that to say that for Black people in our community, for, for our community and for residents in our community, getting involved in, a, in an intelligent way and, and sometimes in a joint venture way in the real estate in our community not only brings capital to you, but it brings stability to our community. Because if we're out there with the right motives and the right uh, um, capital going in and the knowledge about how this stuff works and collaborating with one another about how to protect not only our assets and our income, but our community. And I can tell you, I've had the opportunity to be exposed to folks in other communities. That's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they Somebody gets into trouble. I was in Texas. I was in Houston. There was a guy... He's a big time developer there. He got into some financial trouble when the market crashed back in the uh, in the uh, early 90s. He had a friend um, named uh, Benson, Lloyd Benson's son, the, the, the uh, candidate for vice president with Michael Dukakis. Mm -hmm. Lloyd Benson's son, I can't remember his first name. He just went in and bought all of his property so that he remained solvent. And the, and the properties that he owned didn't dissipate in the community that they were both out there trying to improve. I, did, and I it, think it, Donald Trump's father, or Donald Trump, did something like similar. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's exactly right. Yeah, these guys go out and they say, "Okay, you're in trouble. You're my friend. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to pay you X amount of money so that you come out solvent. You can take care of your family. And when when it, when you get back on your feet, if you want to buy back in, we'll work out something." And we don't do that. We don't do that. We we will watch you crash and burn. We'll wait till the to the, the bank gets it, and we'll try to buy it out from you under the bank. So when you say we, I mean you talk about our our culture. Why why do you think that is? I mean, is that it, it, it's it's the culture that we do in everything. We are we're we're bag, we, crabs in a barrel kind of culture. I think I I I like to think, and I'm 74 years old. So I'd like to think that I'm seeing in people like yourself and in younger people a different mindset. Um, overall, I think you're better educated than we were at the same time in our lives. Um, even even those of us who were successful, you know, you know, uh, you know, I, I didn't go to graduate school until I was probably 35 years old. Okay, and I only went to graduate school because somebody told me that you're not going to get past this this mark unless you get a graduate degree. So I went and got a graduate degree because, mm -hmm. you know, but but it wasn't something that I was interested in, something I thought I needed because I was doing OK without one. Um, but I got it because I got it. and I'm glad I got it because once I got it, I saw the doors that opened for me at that level. So, you know, the 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 nuts and bolts of real estate, you, you do real estate, I do real estate, the nuts and bolts of real estate aren't all that, you know, we try to make them mysterious, but they really are not all that complicated. If you understand the basic financing of a real estate project, it's pretty perfunctory. It's pretty pro forma. You know, it is a cap rate. It is, you know, it's going to cost this much to build the building. What can I sell it for? How long can I hold it and still make 15, 20% on my investment if that's my goal? And so, you know, those things are pretty, pretty uh, uh, basic. Question is, how do you pick what you buy? Because right, from what I hear, I hear you make money when you purchase the asset. 
not when you sell it. Is that something that you agree with? I, it can be. It, it, it can be. It depends on what asset you're buying and what you consider making money. If I buy, I, let me put it this way. I bought a property a little bit ago. I paid 10 grand for it. It appraised out at 70 grand. It was a vacant building. It appraised out vacant as a $70,000 building. In real terms, I picked up 60 grand. Okay, it wasn't cash, but my net worth went from 10 to 70. And then I put improvements in that building and, you know, the building wound up being worth over $400,000 and I spent two. So I spent 210 to get to four. Mm. I like that math. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that but, math. Yeah. So, so are you saying that as a, as a property developer, do you think that a quicker way to financial freedom is through the property development side or is it through like a, a buy and hold strategy? I know you alluded earlier to um, kind of cooperative economics, you know, kind of almost like the Kwanzaa principles, like working together, setting a goal, taking care of the community and recycling that dollar. Um, the, the, I don't think it's an either or. Again, I get back to if, if I think the making money is harder doing single family because you're talking about individual transactions. Okay. There's a lot more risk in single family, but if, if you, depending on what you're building and where you're building it, the upside can be a lot greater than multifamily. The, the other side of it, and this is important in our community as well, is we've got to start thinking about, and then this is heresy, but we got to start thinking about something other than affordable housing. And I've been an affordable housing developer for a very long time. What do you mean by that? I mean that if we create a community where there is no room for people who make money, we're always going to have, we're always going to be basking in poverty. If we create a room, a community where there's no room for people to make money. No, who th th there's no room for people who have made money. Okay. All right. So in other words, if, if everything is affordable housing and you've got to, you got to, you got to have, you can't have more than X to be able to move into that property, either to buy it or to live in it as a renter. If that's your situation, then if I make $100,000, you're telling me you don't want me in your community. Uh, if I make $150,000, you tell me you don't want me to live in your community. I'll give you an example of something I did when I ran a nonprofit development company in Kansas City. You, you saw it there. Um, when I got there, they had 15 houses that were affordable. That were gorgeous, 1,800 square feet. They were just well-built, well-designed, you know, very attractive. They had been sitting there for, you know, six months, plus or minus when I got, when I got down there. And I asked them, I said, well, why haven't you sold them? And they said, well, you know, the, when we get qualified people who are qualified to buy them, their credit's bad or they don't have enough income or they can't really support the mortgage, et cetera. And I said, well, what happens? Who else are you seeing? They said, well, we get a lot of kids who are coming back from college, they're young married, maybe they, they have one child and they'd like to buy them, but they make too much money as a, as a combined working college graduated, college educated family. So they make too much money that I said, it is ridiculous to tell somebody they make too much money to buy a house. What's the thinking behind that? It's the, it's the, it's the, Fed, that's another whole podcast perhaps because the whole 
public support of affordable housing is not designed to build community. It's designed, it's designed to warehouse the poor. And this is something I've been doing my whole career. Like the projects, basically. It's like the projects, exactly. It is exactly like the projects. And there's a whole spinoff that comes from that that is, you know, is disastrous to community building for sure. It has been more disastrous to the Black community because we were already fragile in terms of marriage and stable families and all the rest of that. And then when you say to a, to a woman, um, you can have a, you can, you can be on the lease, but if he's on the lease, your income and his income are going to put you over the ability to come in here on the lease. And if you want to buy a house, I know a couple right now. Um, they, the, the wife went on deed. They bought a house under affordable housing program. The wife went on deed. The husband couldn't go on deed. He's a school teacher. She's a public, uh, she's a public uh, employee. And together they make really good money. Um, and individually, they make pretty decent money. Uh, but, but they couldn't have bought that house when they bought it if they had both gone on deed. So she owns the house. Now, they, they may have subsequent to their getting married, they may have gone back and uh, redeeded the property with both names on it. But in most cases, that doesn't happen. So they have their first argument. My house, you can go. It, all of those things happen. They don't happen when you got both names on the deed because it's our house and I ain't going nowhere. You know, that becomes the conversation. And then they start to work out the problem. But that's a real situation. I'll tell you another even more devastating real situation. This is on the rental side. Imagine you're renting an apartment. You're in a, you're in a Section 8 affordable housing situation. Uh, um, the, the, uh, the job says... Josh, you're going to get a 5% increase on your salary. And you know that you're right at the tippity top of the amount of income that you can have to uh, continue to have that Section 8 apartment. Because if you go over by $5, you are no longer eligible to be in that property. So the boss says you're going to get, a, get, get this raise. And you say to the boss, is there any way I can defer that or not get the raise? Or worse yet, Give if you insist, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it ain't that kind of job. <laughs> but 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 you say to the boss, well, if you give me the raise, I'm going to quit. So I quit my job. I go back on welfare. I can keep my apartment, okay? My because I'm only paying thirty percent of whatever my income is. So my rent actually goes down, but so doesn't my self esteem. My job values, maybe my, my family values and all the rest of that, because I'm in, a, I'm in a hole that I can't get out of. And to do the whole math all the way out, in Chicago, the average rent is about $1,600, $1,700 a month. If you're a Section 8 person, you might be paying nine. So if you get a 5% raise on a $40,000 salary, mm -hmm. it's a couple of dollars a, a week or a couple of dollars a month. Yeah, It ain't going to get you from nine to 16 any day in the week. Right. Okay. So you've got no choice. So you're trapped in this subsidized affordable housing. So this is one of those things where they say the system is designed to keep people down. Is that? That is exactly what it is. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you if, if you, <laughs> I can take you back. See, in the 50s, when public housing 
was probably 50, 60% white. Let me tell you what the rules were. The rules were that same family, you get that 10% raise, you had 900, the maximum rent for that they're gonna charge you was $1,000. So you pay the $1,000 and you can make as much money as you can make for up to two years. The goal was to give you an opportunity to save enough money to put a down payment on a house, to do something to change your status and so forth and so on because they understood that folk couldn't get from here to there in a day. So if they said, okay, you need to be out, you know, some of today is today's, uh, May the 16th, 2022. Josh, you can live here and you can pay the maximum rent of $1,000 a month, but on May the 6th, 2024, your butt better be someplace else because you ain't going to be here. Now you got two years to figure it out. Hmm. Government stopped that. Sounds like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. But 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 the but the the reality is the system is is designed, um, you know, to to uh, to not do that. And so we've got a part of our responsibility, not the system, not the government, not anybody, but part of black real estate and the black community writ large is to figure out how to change that system for our people. And 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 it, it's difficult because most of us. So what are some changes that some the changes that you would make? So if I'm doing rental housing, if you was even starting with educating folks, because you've you've had the luxury of working on the ground level, working on a middle level, witnessing it with your aunt and uncle, working at a board of director level. So you've had. And you've been in the urban core. You said, you know, your whole career. Yeah, my entire career. I mean, I moved to the suburbs. I lived in the suburbs for all of two years. I, it was so quiet. I, I, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I had to come back to the city. I, I think I lived, I lived in, a, in a suburban town outside of Boston for two years. And I don't think I heard a fire engine once in two years. Wow. You know, it just didn't hear a fire engine. Um, but you, you asked me, you asked me, uh, what do I think we need to do? I think our community needs to, first of all, recognize that there is a problem and there is a trap and that affordable housing programs, I don't think we ought to do away with them. I don't think we ought to stop having them because that would be as crazy as anything else. But I think people need to start coming up. We need to come up with strategies to help people transition from where they are to where they need to go. Is that cooperative housing? Some people think it is. You get into a co-op, you have an equity stake, you have a say, you actually have um, some value. If that, that property is appreciating in value, you can sell that value uh, to the next buyer. And at least, even if you only get out what you put in it, you're at least coming out with some cash, as opposed to if you're renting all your life. Um, there are at least the purchase programs. I'm not a big fan, but they do work. And that is you get somebody in, they lease for a while, some portion of their rent goes towards the purchase of that, the down payment for the purchase of that property. You help them uh, improve their credit. If they can improve their job situation, all that kind of stuff, you help them do that. Just what I will tell you and what I've said in a number of forums over the years is have, I have never gotten a job 
because I filled out an application, sent in my resume or any of that kind of stuff and waited for a, 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 a human resources person to call up and say, we want to call you in for an interview. I don't have that experience. If I had to apply for a job, I don't know what I would do because I don't have any experience doing that. I have experience with my next door neighbor, my friend, my relative, my somebody saying to an employer, there's somebody you need to meet. And that comes from the circle that you live in mostly, or the circle that you, you know, either worship in or, or socialize in. So what am I saying? If we have, we've had, you know, we have the projects. So if you had the projects and nobody works, the probability of you getting a referral to a job is next to zero. Mm. Okay. Because who's going to refer you? Who knows you? Who? But you're going to learn <laughs> You're gonna learn how to stay on welfare, though. <laughs> yeah, you will, and you'll learn every trick. You'll <laughs> learn, learn every trick in the welfare book. Yeah, but and so if we don't do this, um, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy for us. Uh, but I, it, I, do, do people but, of, of high income really want to be around folks of, of lower income? Not, not all of them. No, not all of them. But you know what? There are a lot of people. I talked to a guy. Uh, I'll, I'll describe him. Um, actually, he is. Uh, he. You will meet him Saturday. I'll introduce you to him Saturday. Great. Um, he will be at Top Golf. He was one of the first black vice presidents at Sears. He was in New York, and when they moved to Chicago, he came with them. He was one of the few that they brought from New York to, to Chicago. Um, he lived in South Shore. He lived at 87th and Jeffrey, I think, mm -hmm. but somewhere in that general vicinity. And when you know things started to get bad in Chicago, schools and things, that, things like that, he had a choice of sending his kids to, to private school or moving to Evanston. He chose to move to Evanston, raised his family, very successful. He left Sears and started his own business. His daughter runs it now. You know, every modicum of success that you can, you can imagine. I was talking to him, we talked about, you know, what that did when people like him moved out of the community and how that devastated Black families who were remained, who couldn't move out. And he said to me, he said, you know, as I look at it today, in hindsight, I could have done more good staying in the community because I had the economic wherewithal, I had the political wherewithal, I had, you know, he said I was involved in community activities and all that, but I, like everybody else, I panicked around the schools and got my kids out of there because I didn't want to pay for, for public school. For well, private a lot school. of that is is you know realtors they call it blockbusting and steering and red all of the above no absolutely absolutely i mean we've seen all of that but we don't see through it because what they do is they attack our personal um you know our personal net worth and we don't have much mm -hmm. and so we say if, if i lose the value of my house and i can't sell my house for what i paid for it that's going to be a that's going to be you know but you have to look at it, and, and some of this is, is not going to happen, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, 
but if you look at it and say, if we all stayed, then one, we ain't moving. And two, we'll buy each other's house. We'll move up, you know, into, you know, I, you know, I, I lust for Jim Montgomery's house. I'm not going to buy it because I ain't got that kind of money at this stage of my life. I don't need a house that big, but it's a beautiful house. And, you know, I probably shouldn't use that word, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, there are people whose homes that you could, you could aspire to, to want to have. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that part of what my aspiration is to answer your question more directly about the economics of it all, though, is I look at people like yourself, say, I hope you don't move out of Chicago. I hope you raise your kids in Chicago, in the city. You know, you live in, you live in a nice neighborhood and that's great. But stay in the city, because what what's what you have to look beyond your day to day economics. If we lose Chicago and, the you know, we're one third, 40 percent of the population of the voting population in Chicago. We just seen the city council, you know, arguing over whether Hispanics should have more seats or blacks should have more seats. And now we got Chinese who want seats on the council. And again, I'm, I'm, that's not meaning to say that they shouldn't have. them, But I'm saying that the further we move, you know, we move to the south suburbs, we move to the west suburbs, we're out of the city, and the city is the seat of power. The city of Chicago runs the state of Illinois, believe it or not, you know, from as an outsider looking at politics from that vantage point, the, if the city of Chicago don't want it to happen, it's probably not going to happen. Um, I'll give you a parallel experience. I did, I, I grew up in Boston. I was in Boston. I left. I came to Chicago when I was 43 years old. So I was. A, I always tell people I was a slow learner because I didn't run away from home until I was in my 40s. Um, but uh, I worked for the mayor of Boston, Kevin White, and there was a referendum to change the tax structure for the state. the The suburban out outstate people, the equivalent your downstate folks, did not want to see this happen. The mayor told us that he needed 80% of the eligible voters in the city of Boston to vote in favor of this referendum in order to carry the state. And he understood that if he could get 80% of the eligible voters in the state, to, I mean, the city to do that, there was no way that the rest of the state could beat him. And he didn't get 80%, but you know, the, the vote, it was an off year election. so. You know, 80% was the mathematical number, but 60% of the city of Boston's eligible voters actually carried the day. Now, I understand that it was illegal for public employees to work on political campaigns. Yeah, okay, <laughs> big deal. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that if we get out of the seat of power, then somebody else is going to make is going to drive the train. And we're going to have nothing to say. So if I'm sitting out there in the suburbs and I'm I'm thinking I finally have arrived because I'm out here in Flossmoor, Homewood, and I almost moved to Flossmoor, but I first moved to Chicago. But so they're beautiful communities. I'm not criticizing them for that. But I'm saying they're not to see the power. And even if you've got us, even if you're in the town council or you're this, or you're that, and we, we know some folks who are doing that, the reality is Chicago is where it's happening. And if our community gives up the city, it's not just moving to a better neighborhood. It's giving up the city and giving up the power that comes with being in the city. I, I, I'm not sure that that's clear, that I'm making myself 
clear, but um, it, it's a political place that I like to be. I, you know, when you, and, and it all starts with real estate. It all starts with home ownership. Imagine as you look at South Shore, if you look at um, uh, Inglewood, okay, you look at Inglewood that just lost Whole Food. Mm -hmm. There are some who said Whole Food should never move in in the first place. Mm. I I've heard that argument. But I will, and and do you agree? I I, I do agree that Whole Food should have never been there. But they were, I mean, Whole Food was receiving subsidies. Yes, know? absolutely. It, it was a political thing that that was done to create some hoopla that I'm really, you know, trying to do this. And they are trying to revitalize Englewood. So I'm not trying to say that's not happening. But Whole Food wasn't the store. I, I did it. I don't want to talk about my out-of-state things because I, I understand that people don't care about that, but I, I use it as an analogy. Did a shopping center in uh, Kansas City. We bought in a top-line uh, uh, gross. It's a little different because we don't have they don't have chains there. They have independent operators, but it was but there are tiers of grocery stores. So we brought in the SunFresh, um, and SunFresh was doing very very well. It was really well run, well stocked, well everything. But people who said we need to have a top line grocery store in our neighborhood, you know what they did? They turned around and they drove 10 miles to go to Holt, to go to uh, uh, Walmart, which was 10 miles away. You had to get in the car and go. And so this whole notion that neighborhood grocery stores are what people want, people want to want the best bargain they can get. And if you don't believe me, go to Walmart on 47th and Cottage Grove on a Friday afternoon. You can't get in there. They can't manage the lines trying to check out. Mm. And, you know, you got down the street, you got Jewel. Jewel doesn't have the same congestion that Walmart does. And it's, a, it's just a, it's a little corner store. It ain't a real Walmart. So all I'm saying is people are looking for the best deal they can buy. And so, you know, we've got to change our thinking. It is, what's the word? It's nostalgic to think about having a grocery store in the corner. That's a top line grocery store in the corner. It, it's the way it used to be. It's the way it was when I was a kid. But it's not reality it's like, it is, 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 is the deal. It's just not reality today. Um, we get in our cars. We get whatever we get to go to the grocery store. So is, is, is buying a house, I mean really like when we try to buy in a community in our own community especially if let's say six figures is like the benchmark for like good income you know you making that type of money you buy a house because I, I bought my first building in chatham yep and there was a three flat building <clears throat> it was really a two flat i made the, the, the basement a unit for myself and i did that so i could live there for free I understand. Because I just wanted to have, I was a teacher at the time. You know, my friends graduated college. They were making 80, 90 grand. So I'm trying to keep up with them. I'm like, okay, if I get a, a building, I can live for free and at least travel when it's time to travel with them. You know, <laughs> I can at least hang out. But yeah. when I, you know, I, I bought that building in 2007. 
320,000 or 340,000. Right. I just sold it last year. It only increased in value by like 30 grand over 15 years. But I, I bought other buildings since then mm-hmm. that have increased in, in neighborhoods that aren't ours. And they've like drastically increased in value. So what you're saying is, is a hard pill to swallow for people that want to got to get stay in the community to build it up. No, but okay. So, 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 so let me, let's talk about, let's talk about dates and times uh-huh. in from 2000 and four or five until seven, you couldn't believe what people were paying for property. I know I overpaid. I bought man. Yeah, well, that's it, that, and that's why you only. That's the only reason why you only picked but up thirty thousand. I, I put a <laughs> lot. I rehab this thing. I put a lot into this. I probably put like one hundred twenty grand into it. I, I understand all that. <laughs> I, I do understand all that. And what I'm saying is, part of the real estate experience is that was probably a fix and flip. That was probably come in buy this thing flip it to somebody else because if you paid what you paid for it then maybe you pick up 50 grand because somebody's gonna pay more because you did something to it all right mm-hmm. and but you know we're we that's the era when people were paying you know i would see buildings people say well, i paid five hundred thousand dollars for it i said number one you can't afford five hundred thousand dollars because remember we also had those variable mortgages that you know three five years down the road your, your yeah. mortgage rates are going to go up but right now we're going to make it low so you can get like in the front door. So it was, something yeah, the arms, the, the arms. And, and so all of those things were going on in the real estate market, which is why it broke in 2007 and eight. Okay. And, and, and the difference in what you're talking about is I came to Chicago in 1990. And when I came to Chicago, people, the reason why I didn't stay in Boston and do something different is people said to me, real estate is broke and it's going to fall apart in a couple of years. And it did. It was like 91, 92, it collapsed. 90, no, it's 86. The, the, the tax laws changed and the real estate market collapsed. Then in the 90s, it collapsed again. And then in 2006 and seven, it collapsed a third time. So in 30 years, it collapsed uh 20 years, I'm sorry. In 20 years, it collapsed three times. And so people were overpaying because they thought that the the market was going to go on forever. And then it just collapsed. And the financing market collapsed too. So when you had an arm, you could afford to buy a lot more than you could afford to buy when you had a regular mortgage. Mm -hmm. Because now you're getting, you know, you with an arm, you were getting a low rate at the beginning and a high rate at the end. And the blended rate was the rate that you should have been paying all along. So people were overbuying and overpaying because they could. The only people were making money were the finances, were the banks. The banks were making a ton of money and, you know, for fees and all the rest of that kind of stuff. So I said all that to say, getting back to the whole real estate question, is you really have to understand the environment that you're in at the time. And a lot of people jump because they can and not because they thought, yeah, I, I just saw this thing and it's and it, and it really is a good deal. That building I just talked about that I paid $10,000 for, most people who knew about that deal said, you just made a dumb, you just you just pissed away, excuse me, you just uh, wasted $10,000. <laughs> right. 
And I'm saying, okay. Because I knew that the west side of Chicago is, is the next frontier. You know how I knew? Well, you were a developer. Well, that's part of it, but that's not the reason I knew. I'd get up on a, I learned early in Whole Foods you put up over there? No, not, no, and there's no Whole Foods. They, matter of fact, I don't know where the grocery store is in that neighborhood. I don't, but I know that everybody on the street has a car and every house has a, has a garage. So there's a car parked on the street and there's another car parked in the garage because they're mostly one car garages. And so, you know, you say, well, okay, they got transportation. So they don't care where the grocery store is because they can go to the grocery store they want to go to. Uh, in this number neighborhood, it is um, it's it's uh, it's in the it's in the forties. It is um, um, uh, probably five minutes from all of that shopping on Cicero, where all the Menards and Home Depot and Target, oh, yeah. that whole area along there. Yeah. It's it's ten minutes from there. You know, if you don't get caught in the train, you can be there in ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And so if, if they want to go to the grocery store, they can go over there. And they just opened up a big Walmart a little bit further, uh, a little bit further south. So, you know, people don't care about that. But what 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 tipped me off? You see the people who are out walking their poodles on Sunday morning. The the Europeans out there walking their poodles tell you that they're getting ready to move in and they're buying property. They're not renting, they're buying. I'm rehabbing a house on Lawndale and um, trying to think of the, 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 the street that it abuts it, but it's a 1900 block of Lawndale over there by Lawndale Christian. You know where that whole area is? Somewhat. I'm a South Sider. Yeah. Okay. But, but uh, again, this is a neighborhood that until I got picked up this project, I wouldn't have gone in. And a guy asked me, he said, a friend of mine's daughter bought this house and she paid $330,000 for it. I said, well, where is he? He told me he was 1900 block of Lawndale. I said, somebody robbed her until I got over there. Hmm. And nobody robbed her. She got a deal, you know? It, you got to watch markets. It's not pricing is important, but what is the stability of the market that you're looking at? You know, who lives there? The property that I bought for $10,000, what's interesting about my block, all of my neighbors have lived there for 25 years or more. Okay. Most of them don't have a mortgage. Hmm. And if they have a mortgage, it's because they refinance a college education or they refinance something, you know, for their family. But, you know, like I said, they've been there, you know, guys said, well, I, we moved here in 1966. My mother bought this house in 66. When she passed, I kept it. And I live here now. Or, you know, or things like that. I mean, these, these are the stories that the neighbors tell. And so you're looking at that stability and, you know, Every June, you see the, the on the porches that you know, home of a of a you know graduate 
from high school or graduate from college because they're very proud of their kids' accomplishments. And so you can see that this is where there is stability, that even if the kids come back, these are kids who are college graduates. These are not, you know, I didn't buy in Chatham. You know why I didn't buy in Chatham when I first moved to Chicago? Why not? I was under the I was under the delusion that that it wasn't actually a delusion, but um, I was going to buy in that development that Dempsey Travis did over there on 83rd Street. And I looked around and I said. These were probably wonderful people, you know, growing up, but they're older than me. And there's a good chance that these houses are going to wind up in the hands of their near do well children because their children that did well will probably move someplace else because they're not going to want to continue to be in this community. They're going to move to the suburbs. And quite frankly, I was right. You know, it's not a terrible neighborhood, but it's not as good as it was when it was in its heyday. Yeah, those homes were, were, were real nice. <laughs> great, great concept, too, when you built them. I mean, they're spacious, big. Yeah. And I like how they are gated. Yeah. Really uh, I mean, when I, when I, the, the price over there, I mean, Chicago is always fascinating because people talk about the expense of living in Chicago. But when I when I when I came to Chicago and we we rented an apartment in this building, we still live here. Uh, it went condo about five years after we we got here. Um, but uh, uh, the lady said to me, "Well, Mr. Jones, um, the rent is thirteen hundred dollars a month, and you know heat's included, and all you have to do is pay the electric bill, and everything else is included." And my wife was getting ready to get excited about that. And I sort of said to her, I just gave her that eye look, like, don't say nothing. Because I was expecting to pay about 18, 1900, because that's what the rents were in Boston. Because yeah. Boston's a much smaller city. And so the demand, you know, given the, given the density, the demand is much greater. And the, the apartment, we have a three bedroom, three bath um, apartment in an elevator building with the doorman in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, uh, and a uh, garage attendant and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And I put my car in, if I want to, I put my car in, turn it off and walk away and somebody will park it for me and, you know, go get it. I don't let them do that because I'd rather park my own car. But, um, and it doesn't cost us a whole lot of money. <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, compared to what we would pay if we were someplace else is the point I'm making. Oh, well, but, yeah, Chicago, you can get affordable houses. I think what yeah. Chicago gets you is like, the parking, like all the little fees, the taxes, and all that little those little add-ons. Let me tell you something about Chicago taxes. I'm going to disabuse you of a notion. When I was doing some work on the West Side, which is how I came to learn about the West Side, I looked at a property. I looked at two properties that were on Austin Boulevard. As you know, that's the dividing line between Oak Park and, 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 and the Austin community. And these were identical houses built approximately the same time by the same architect and builder. Those Oak Park taxes are crazy. Exactly right. The taxes <laughs> in Oak Park for the same house, Oak Park was three and a half times on taxes, the cost of taxes on the Chicago side. And I, and I think if you look at some of the other suburbs, the taxes are much higher than Chicago. Now you can complain that taxes in Chicago are high, but don't move to the suburbs. Yeah. And you get you actually get less services because I was I wasn't surprised, but I was surprised. And a lot of those communities, they don't allow commerce. They don't allow, you know, certain businesses, certain types of business. You can have a grocery store or you can have a, um, uh, you know, a little convenience store or something like that. But you can't have um, 
a manufacturing business. No, a man, they probably have a liquor store, but you can't oh. have a manufacturing business. In other words, what what mitigates the tax burden in Chicago is the commercial property. Mm-hmm. If we didn't have downtown, the taxes in Chicago would be through the roof. But be, they don't have downtown. They don't allow downtown. So they're paying all of the taxes for all of the school taxes. They're paying all of that. There's no, there's no commerce that is paying. You know, it, there's no job creation that, you know, there's no company that's got 500 workers. Okay. You got a, a you know, a restaurant, you've got a bar or something like that, but you don't have anybody that's, that's employing 500 people. And so as a consequence, you got no commercial tax base. You have a residential tax base and that's it. That's hurt. That's hurt some of the uh, black suburbs. Yeah, no, that's exactly what's hurt them. That's exactly what's hurt them. A suburb like Calumet City, you buy a a house for 250 grand, but the taxes are 12 grand. You like, you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the schools aren't great and all of that. No, Um, that's that's that is the thing. Um, You know, I, I. this might, I, I feel like this was a sort of a disjointed conversation, but, um, you know, the, 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 the real estate thing is real. I think that the real estate thing is something that it is a passion for people who decide I want to be in real estate and I want to do this. Just real quickly, if you were to say, you know, we're going to have um, multifamily housing, then I would say to you, okay, you need to concentrate it in you know a relatively neat section of the city or in neat bundles even if you're in different neighborhoods and the reason for that is simply management you need to be able to have in my opinion you need to be able to manage 150 100 150 200 units in a tight geography to be able to spread the cost of maintenance and repairs and things of that nature and and just the whole management staff um, over that many units in order to make it economical for the company to to be able to to manage that. Um, You know, I don't like property management personally, but you either have to be your own manager or your own manager. I, you know, people hire third-party managers, I get it. But I got to tell you, the risk of that, and I would tell you offline, you know, one of my one of my very bad experiences with third party managers, because you don't ever see enough the third party manager to know how good they're doing. And they can if they're good, they can show you a good time for a long time before you figure out that they're not doing so they're not doing as well as you thought they were. Um and I, I have firsthand experience mm. with that. I was just about to ask you, like before we close out, if you could tell sure. me your biggest mistake and your biggest like win. My biggest mistake in real estate. My biggest mistake was probably in the management area. Um, and the only salvation that I had. And I'm telling the story that I didn't want to tell. I had a guy steal $486,000 from our management company. 
How could how could that happen? Okay. <laughs> it's still four hundred eighty six thousand. You're gonna have to do that over four hundred eighty six thousand years. No, 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 no. I'm gonna tell you exactly how it happened. Okay. Usually when you have a property manager, property manager takes, he has all your financial records, he gets your bank statements, he opens them, he, you know, he does all of that. Well, this particular, and we discovered this on a fluke, we would have never discovered it if it hadn't been for a really a fluke, or I would say divine intervention, past that in a little bit. Um, the short answer is, over the years, what he started doing was he would send us dummy reports with bank statements that he made up. Okay, you, you follow me, right? Following dummy statements that he made up. I mean, that's elaborate. Yes. So like a Ponzi scheme or something? It was, no, not a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> what he simply did was the real bank statement, and I didn't, I, when I discovered this, you know, it was, it had been going on for years. As you said, it had been going on for about three or four years that I knew that we were able to, that we went back. We didn't go back more than three, uh, four years. So he was managing years. buildings that you own? Yes. We had 500, we had a 500 unit complex that he was managing. And there was a lot of cash going through it. Okay. And so what he would do is he would just peel off some of the cash and it was, and, and understand that property management is all cash. I mean, it, it comes in the form of checks, but it's cash. Yeah. And so, um, so, so that was all happening. I would get reports and statements faithfully on the tenth of the month. It was the fifteenth of the month, but whatever day it was, I would get a report and I would match it to the to the bank statements. And little did I know that the bank statement was manufactured. It was a it was a zero. It was theoretically it was a Xerox copy of the original bank statement. But who suspects that somebody is actually manufacturing a bank statement? So let me tell you how it got discovered. I refinanced the property. And I had paid a $25,000 application fee to do the refinancing. We had a, we had a uh, $4.5 million mortgage balance. And the property had appreciated in value. I refinanced the property for $12 million. And once the refinancing was complete, they sent me back the $25,000 as, you know, you know, as, as per the, the agreements that we had made. And when I got the $25,000 check, it was a couple of days before Christmas. So I called the, I called the management company and I said, you know, to, to, to say, here's the check, go and deposit it. And there was nobody around. They'd all left for Christmas. So I said, well, I, I know what the bank account, I, I got a deposit slip. I can, I know how to do this. And so I went over to the bank and I deposited the money myself and I put the deposit slip on my desk and I went off on Christmas and I forgot about it. Simple as that. I just forgot about it. So come January, the auditors show up, they start doing the audit. They, um, they send the confirmations over to the bank and they get the confirmation back and the balances are off because he didn't know about the $25,000. So when he did his phony bank statement, he didn't allow for the $25,000. So these are auditors from the, the bank that you're refinancing? No, no, no. no. The auditors were our, our company auditors. I used to have the books audited every year. Oh. But even the auditors didn't see his theft. So you hired auditors to audit we, your own properties? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay. All right. So they, they didn't see it for years. So that so we are on, it was, I can tell you exactly that it was Valentine's Day. It was February the 14th. It was a Friday and it was raining. I get a call from the auditor and he said, uh, Mr. Jones said, you got to come to my office. We've got a problem. And I said, well, can it wait till Monday? Because, you know, I haven't got anything for my wife for Valentine's Day. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's Friday afternoon and it's raining. I don't want to go downtown. Wait till the last minute. And so... <laughs> He said, no, he said, you got to come down here today. So we go downtown and, you know, I'm, and so he gets the bank on the phone and we're trying to get this discrepancy. And it had, at that point, it hadn't dawned on me that it was exactly $25,000. So we're trying to get this discrepancy. We call the bank and I forget the lady's name now, but I knew the lady who was, who we were talking to. And I said, how is it possible that the balance on our bank statement is different than the balance that you're now trying to confirm? That we're now trying to confirm it's the two different numbers and she said can you fax me what you have so we faxed over the bank statement that we had and she called us back like two minutes later and she said i see the problem she said what i said what's the problem she said what you sent us wasn't we didn't produce that wow. and she said not only are the numbers wrong she said the font's off by this much and oh. the Pike is off this. And oh, I don't understand geez. all these things, but I but I got it. He he had created this bank statement that looked like Surebank, but it wasn't Surebank. So did you let him keep doing it? So that's the fun. It wasn't funny at the time, but that, he said to I, you know, we confronted him. I confronted him. We talked, he denied for a while. Then we went into a private office and he said, Look, he said, you know, I'm not gonna admit to stealing anything. He said, but I'm gonna tell you the buck stops with me. He said, I will put the money back on the condition that um, I can keep the contract. Now we were paying him. Yeah, I know that's. That... <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was good. <laughs> yeah, well, he did a little timer behind that too, but um, but he had contracts with the housing authority. He had been doing that with all of his clients. What he would do every year. And it's interesting because the the audits are done because these were all programs that had federal money. So the federal government requires you to provide confirmation as of December 31st. So what he would do is on December the 30th, he'd take and write a check on a closed account to make up the number that it was supposed to be there. And he would deposit that check. And so the, the, the balance on December 31st was always the number that it was supposed to be. On January the 2nd, that check would bounce and it'd go back to the balance that it was. Wow, that's some American greed type. <laughs> so, so talk about my, 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 my worst day. There you go. Wow, that's a $400,000 um, lesson. But, you know, he, he um, they, we've, you know, as a result of that, they found out that the, uh, that he had done that on some CHA stuff and some other stuff and he did federal time well you can't steal from the government they take that no, and, well I'm, i gotta tell you i'll tell you the other thing when he said to me he said you know can i keep can i keep the gig See, i already knew in it, with federal stuff like that you have 72 hours to notify them that you've discovered you know a theft or any any kind of criminal activity and I got paranoid because it was a weekend. And I said, nah, I found out at such and such time on Friday. And if I wait till Monday, I was on the phone to the regional office 
Monday, as soon as they opened up at 8.30, I called at 8 o'clock just to make sure somebody didn't come to work early. Because wow. I said, you know, because I said 72 hours, I didn't blown that on the weekend. Mm-hmm. If I had known that guy's home number, I would have called him at home. But uh, my, my, it's probably not the most successful thing I did. I mean, I've done a lot of things that, that were really, really uh, successful. But, um, you know, one was I put together, I'll tell you two. You asked me for one, but I want to give you two. I put together a program in Kansas City. I acquired a piece of land that was on the back gate of the uh, VA hospital. And I'm a veteran and I have a burning in my heart for veterans. And um, one of the things that I came to know is that, particularly with uh, PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah, PTSD, um, that it affects not only the veteran, but it also affects the veteran's family. And they all suffer with it, even though we talk about veterans that have it. So what we were trying to do, I was, I was working under the, I was working for a corporation that owned health centers and the real estate company. So what I did with the health center, I said, if we were able to service the whole family, would it be better? And they said, yes, but they can't get the VA benefits if they come to our health center. And because of, um, because of uh, the laws, the HIPAA laws, we can't collaborate. And so I said, you know, this is kind of weird. And I said, even if you got permission, I said, well, yeah, that would be a complicated. So I set up a bunch of meetings with the VA hospital and our health, search, our health center people. The outcome of that was that we got this collaboration going so that if the veteran gave permission for his wife's doctors to understand what he was going through and his wife gave permission for the VA doctors to understand what she was going through and the kids were going through, then in fact they could collaborate, even though they were being treated separately, they could collaborate on treatment and it would be much more efficient in terms of the healing of the family. Mm. And so that was the first step in it. And then somebody got, gave me the bright idea um, that if I could build a housing development that catered to families that were in distress, um, that the healing might go better, particularly. And so, like I said, I bought this land that was at the uh, on the back gate of the of the VA hospital in Kansas City. Built a fifty unit apartment complex that were um, two, three, and four bedroom apartments, so that it could accommodate families. And we moved in veteran families that were both physically and mentally disabled, and they had the services from our health center and from the VA hospital within five minutes of that location. So that if there were crises, they had, you know, the ability to have people on site in, you know, un- almost instantaneously. And it has worked out. I mean, I've been gone since 2013, but from what I gathered, it is still working very, very well. So that was a, an accomplishment. And we had a board member at, at, at that organization who used to say to me, every board meeting, Mr. Jones, when are you going to do something for veterans? When are you going to do something for veterans? Because her son had been a veteran and had died in combat. Um, and so, you know, that was my tribute to her and she died. She came to the groundbreaking for the project, but she died before we completed it. So that, that's a project that your company owns or that you, you built? I built for somebody else. I mean, I was working for uh, a company. I was the president of the company. I built it for them, but I'm no longer, I no longer own that property, but I still follow it. Wow. Um, but amazing. the other, go ahead. That's amazing. Yeah. It's just, I, 
I have always tried to be a person who thought outside the box. My other, but my most fun thing that I ever did in real estate, and this is this is what I say, you know, people just got to be focused on what they're trying to do. I entered into an agreement to rehab some, to, to buy some property, to rehab into apartments in 1984, latter part of 1984. And I was supposed to close the deal in six months. So I was supposed to get be out of there in about 85. What happened is we were ready to go. What happened was that the um, Sam Pierce, who was then the secretary of HUD, was accused of malfeasance. I don't remember what he was really accused of. It never was clear, but he was supposed to be taking bribes or, you know, setting up things. And, you know, he, he was just accused. He was never convicted. There was never any charges brought. I'm not even sure it was an investigation. It was just a lot of talk. But what it did is it paralyzed anybody who was used to going to the federal government and um, asking for things. So my project got tied up. So when it finally loosened up and I could get the thing done, I went back to the seller and what we had done is the seller made the mistake of letting me um, write the agreement. And I am always fascinated by people who will think just because you have the skin color that we have, that we're not smart. So (laughs) I wrote an agreement that said, in essence, here's the down payment on the property and we're going to close on such and such a day. But if we don't close, all I have to do is give you another check and it gets me, it buys me a six month extension. There's no negotiation about that. I just got to write the check by a date certain. And the amount of the check, <laughs> no matter how many times I do this, the amount of the check contributes to the purchase price. And there's no interest, there's nothing there. So I could have given him that check every six months until the thing was paid off. Mm. So when I got ready to, um, when I got ready to make the final payment, when I got, when I got ready to close, when I was in, in a position to close, he said, wait a minute. He said, property values have gone up. I need more money. That deal is no longer valid. Time has gone by. I said, you've been taking my checks. That was extending the deal. What you're saying is, is not. Now the 86 tax act was important because that was going to change the way that deal was, the structure of that deal would not have been relevant if in fact he had um, he had prevailed. So I said to him, I, what I said to him was his name was Russell. I said, Russell, <laughs> if you make me go to court, I'm going to win. I said, I'm going to make it painful for you if I win, because what had been happening is I had been writing all the checks to him personally. I did my title rundown, so I knew that there were no liens on the property. I knew that he had paid off the mortgage. I knew that he was the owner of the companies that owned the property, but these were companies. And as you know, before 1986, you had double taxation. Or did you know that? No. Okay. Did not know that. <laughs> before 1986, if you own, you know, like now we have S corporations. You know what X, S corporations? Pardon me? That's diabolical. What? Jones, you're diabolical. You haven't heard diabolical yet. You haven't heard diabolical yet. Uh, but I see where you're going. So he had double taxation. I wrote him a check personally so he didn't have to pay taxes on the corporation. So I said to him, I, I, what I did was I called a friend. I had a friend who was the deputy commissioner of, of uh, the Department of Revenue. So I called her up. Her name was Elise. I said, Elise. Helps to have friends. I said, Elise. I said, um, I got this deal. And I said, 
can you tell me if these corporations have been paying taxes? And she said, absolutely no. So I can't do that. She said, that's illegal. She said, I, you know, I can't invade their privacy by telling you that. So I said, come on, Lisa. I said, you know, I said, just give me, I said, just give me a hint. So she said, I can't tell you whether they've been paying taxes. She said, but what I can tell you is that most people, when they pay, when they file their income tax, they also file a report with the annual, they file the annual report with the attorney general's office. The attorney general's records are public, they're not confidential. I said, oh, I, you know, that was the hand I was looking for. So I went to the attorney general's office. He hadn't filed an attorney general report in eight years, which meant he hadn't probably filed taxes on those corporations in eight years, which, which lined up with when he paid off the mortgage. So when I called him, I said, you know, Russell, I am, you know, we can go to court. We can do the dance that you want to do. I said, but if you show up in my office this afternoon at two o'clock, I'll give you a check for the balance that I believe I owe you. And I'll make the check out to you personally. If you make me go to court and do this dance, you know that I'm going to win. And then I'm going to make the check out to the corporations that own it. And between me and you, my calculation of your tax liability is going to be more than I'm paying you for the property. Wow. He was in my office at quarter to two. Yes. You playing chess, not checkers. He was in my office at quarter to two. <laughs> he said, I'll be there, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he didn't bring his lawyer. He said, ain't no sense of paying him. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> wow. But it, it's, it's, it's called doing your homework. But that's, you know, early in my career, I ran into a guy from Pittsburgh and he was very successful and I said, you know, ask sort of the question that you asked. I said, what do you need to do to be successful? He said to me, he said, Bill, he said, where'd you go to school? So I told him, he said, did you learn to read? And I said, yeah. And he said, don't forget how to read. Always read. Know what you sign. Know what you're doing. Read. And it's as simple as that. People sign stuff. And I've done it. You know, I've, I've signed stuff because I was in a hurry and I didn't think it was sometimes it works out, but sometimes you sign stuff and you sign the wrong thing and you got to pay the price. Yeah. But he said, read and you find these little nuances in documents or you you write a document that 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 uh, document that I wrote for him, the offer to purchase. I never expected him to sign it. My lawyer and I laughed about it. So we'll put this in. We'll put the he won't sign this, but we'll we'll put it in and see what see what happens. He signed it, and he came to regret that he signed it. Yeah, but you know what happened later? <laughs> about six weeks later, he, he called my office. Said, "Could he could he come by?" I said, "Sure." He came by. He offered me to come into a partnership. But he's a he was a very wealthy man, and he said, "I'd like to have you as my partner." Because he was like, you know, <laughs> I'd rather have you on my side than, than have to do, have to deal with you again. Can't be said, him, huh? No, but he was, you know, he was a slum landlord. He and he enjoyed being a slum landlord. That's who he. That's who he wanted to be. He, he didn't think of anything. And this is what I'm saying. He had no respect for the black people who rented from him. He thought they were trash. He was doing them a favor, living in slum conditions. 
and he had no interest. He said, I would always go to court three times. And before the judge got ready, the judge would tell me, if, I, if you have to come back and this isn't done, I'm going to fine you. He said, that's when I'd fix it. Wow. He said, I never wanted to pay a fine, but I had no interest in fixing it until I absolutely had to. And that was his attitude. And that there is a lot of that attitude. And what's going on as we see now with this white supremacy and all the rest of that kind of stuff, those are the folks that own our property. Those are the folks that own the property that we live in in a lot of cases. So they're saying, I don't have to fix nothing. Because wow. number one, you ain't going to complain because you probably passed doing your rent. And number two, even if you complain, the court's going to give me chance after chance after chance to fix it. You know, I got a broken window. Okay, we'll fix it in May. But it's November. Yeah, but you got to give him a couple of months to fix it. He can, the next court date is three months from now. So he know he don't have to fix it for three months. And then he can come back and say, well, you know, I took it to the hardware store and the hardware store was closed. Mm. The, the pandemic closed the hardware store, so I can't fix the broken window. So the family's sitting up there with broken windows they can't get fixed because the hardware store he, he got an account at is closed. What he didn't tell, what he didn't tell the, the judge was that he owned the hardware store. You, you got to be able, this is broader than real estate, but the community has got to be able to look beyond the surface and see what's really going on. That's the responsibility of each and every one of us as citizens, the responsibility of our elected officials. You know, you know, yeah, I, I can get onto the whole political thing again. And, and again, it's not Chicago. It is everywhere I've been. We have politicians who don't support us, mm. who don't work on our behalf. You know, we... Um, how would I say it? We, we don't support our politicians financially. And our politicians, they basically do favors for the people who get in money to stay in office. That's true. Okay. And yet, I mean, I know there's a couple of folks in our organization that are, um, you know, raising packs and things of that nature. We have to do more of that. I mean, we just have to get out there and understand, you know, this is another thing that we who have you know something need to do on behalf of those who have nothing and this this is totally not real estate but let me one of the greatest lessons to me about being a successful black person in a white world in the 70s i can't remember exactly what year anymore boston in Boston, Massachusetts brought in um, a guy as the corrections commissioner. He's over all the prisons in the state. Okay, he was black. He lived in the town of Newton, which was sort of a upper middle class community. Um, it was next to uh, uh, Framingham. Framingham was a more liberal community, but Newton was the next community over. And Newton had blacks living there but in no great numbers and, and, you know, usually quiet people who went to work and came home and were glad they were able to live in Newton in peace. But um, I'm trying to remember his name. It'll come to me, but he was driving home in his state car and he got a flat tire or something. So he went to find a phone to call somebody to come fix the, fix the, the car. 
And for whatever reason, he had put his wallet in his in his briefcase and left the briefcase in the car while he went to find a payphone. So he's in a suit and tie. He's the commissioner of corrections. This is in the 70s. We still wore suit and ties to work every day. He's in a suit and tie. He finds a payphone. Police roll up on him, ask him for, you know, who he was and ask him for identification. So he told him who he was, but they didn't recognize his name. And he didn't have a wallet. So they put the cuffs on him, put him in the backseat of the car, and took him to the station, put him in a cell. Now, he's telling them who he is. They, they're like, ah, you know, black person, commissioner, commissioner of corrections in the state of, state of Massachusetts. That ain't happening. The duty lieutenant happened to walk by the cell block and saw him in there and almost had a conniption fit. It was like, what are you doing in here? He said, your officers locked me up. And he said, for what? He said, for vacancy. So he lets them out and he apologizes. He does all the things that they do. And he basically, I, I wish he, he passed away now because I've actually tried to follow him. But um, but he he left the state. He said, I don't need I don't care how liberal the governor is. I don't care about all these platitudes that people have. But I said that story to say. It doesn't matter how successful you are. If the cop that arrests you don't recognize you as being important and being somebody that they better you know think twice about messing with. And so when we don't support our larger community in ways that are meaningful and, and allow for other people to rise as well, we find ourselves isolated sometimes in situations where um, we can be hurt more. There was a story about a tennis player, I think, several years ago in New York in Grand Central Station. There was yeah, something James, going on. Like, yeah. Um, and, you know, he got knocked down or, or attacked or something like that by the police in, in a mistaken identity. Oh, if we had known you were a famous tennis player, we left you alone. Well, you should have left me alone just because I was a human being. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but but that special treatment, it only goes so far. It only goes so far. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of that. And that all that all really does trigger back into the housing isolation and so forth and so on. I, like I said, I lived in a suburb that was mostly all white. It was all white. There were five black families in the town that I lived in. Five. Hmm. I knew two of them. Okay. We hung out together because that's all we had. Yeah. Um, one was he, he the one he was in the he was in the army. The other was somebody that I knew for a long time. I'd gone to high school with him and we had just known each other for a long time. But the other two families, I didn't know. I mean, I, I, I was acquainted with them, but I didn't know them and I didn't hang out with them. But you know, you you get stopped by the police. For what? You were driving up. The, you were driving too fast through X Y Z Street. Oh well, what do you do? At the time, I was I was chief supervisor for the state of Massachusetts, in charge of public service employment, meaning I was managing a sixty-two million dollar budget in nineteen seventy-six. Whoa! <laughs> I was I was what twenty-eight years old. You know, 
And somebody had to tell the officer, that's Michael Dukakis's guy. You need to back up. Yeah. You know, but he didn't know. I was just a nigga to him. Right. Until somebody told him that I wasn't. <laughs> and, I, and I really was, but I was a special nigga. That's <laughs> and so, you know, again, um, it is what it is. I mean, it's uh, um, if, if, if you get back to what I would like to see, just to close out the real estate piece of it. And I've been trying to and, you know, for all the reasons that you said, people, you know, look at it, where would I invest my money? But what I would like to see is there's a transformation going on on the south side of Chicago. Some of it's fast money, some of it's slow money, but it's all growing money. And you see neighborhoods like um, South Shore, not South Shore, uh, Jackson Highlands. I get them, I get them mixed up. Um, but in Jackson Highlands, where a friend of mine, Steve Bowman, lives. Steve said, oh, you know, Steve, yeah. um, Steve said, you know, uh, his wife gets a call. If, if he said, if you were to walk down my street, not drive, but if, if you drive up to my house and get out and come into my house, nobody's going to, nobody's going to, you know, think about it. But if you were to walk down the street to my house before you got here, there'd be three or four calls that would come through because his wife is on the, on the call line that there's a there's a strange guy walking through the neighborhood you know uh, uh translate there's a black guy walking the neighborhood that nobody knows and this is a black neighborhood but white folks are calling up saying this is our community safety phone chain or whatever they call it and that's what so because they're moving in over there they're spending six seven eight hundred million dollars for houses over there and um they're not totally convinced that they're safe. So they're basically saying, okay, you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're okay. Um, And they're doing this little check mark thing. But they don't, they don't intend for, you know, us to live there long. They intend for us to go move in the neighborhood that they just moved out of. Because that's been the history. And then that neighborhood, you know, goes down. Yeah. You know, it's like I was saying about earlier, they sell you the house, they put a coat of paint on it, what they call a lipstick on a pig. Yeah, it's still a pig, pig. (laughs) put a coat of paint on it. They don't do anything to repair it. And you so happy to be in that neighborhood. You don't look at the house close. Yeah. You know, you get these inspection reports. These inspection reports are garbage. Go find somebody that knows what's what and have them inspect your house get the report because the bank requires it from a licensed certified guy but you better go find you know because they write those reports so innocuous yeah. until they're not telling you anything that that, that is important yeah they just say yeah you might want to get this checked out yeah <laughs> or you know things that are important like you ain't got no insulation in this building and you know that because it was built xyz and if it was built in 1960 or before, it's not insulated because they didn't insulate in those days. And unless somebody, you know, got into a program that, that basically poured insulation in under one of these federal programs, and you ain't trying to buy that house. You're trying to buy the house in Beverly 
that's been there forever. And that person made too much money to get in that, that uh, affordable program. So that house is not insulated. Just think about it. And so you start buying up the property in Beverly and then you figure out that you had enough money to pay the mortgage and you assumed it was insulated, but it wasn't. So now you gotta insulate that big old house. That's funny, I just bought a house in Beverly. And, uh... <laughs> My pipes busted, <laughs> and uh, on my son's birthday, everybody kept using the toilet. Yep. And um, the pipes, but the house hasn't been lived in in five years, and um, yeah, you know the pipes busted, so I had to pay for that at the spur of the moment. But uh, that, was big, that was a big number. Yeah. But Bill Jones, thanks for coming on the show. You've been a great guest today. I appreciate it. I hope I was helpful. Absolutely. I hope I was helpful. I got a history lesson too. Some social conscious. I feel woke now. (laughs) (laughs) I I really do think we, you know, it it is a passion of mine. I mean, I've got, you know, I I got, but so much time left. I actually had my calendar says I got at least 20 years left on this planet, but that's my calendar ain't his, but um, I'm just looking at my, my favorite uncle very great uncle and and saying I'm trying to follow in his footsteps. He lived to be 94 and I'm 74. So I figured like I got at least 20. Of course. course. Mm. So, but, um, but, you know, just my thing is we do have to get woke, but we don't get woke in the way that society's getting woke. I think we got to get woke in self-preservation. Yeah. Cause you know, and that's, that's housing. Just imagine if our home ownership rate rivaled the white community, 40% of the white community owns their own home. Really? Yep. Did not know that. Yep. And I think it's like, it's in the teens with black folks. Mm. 